Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Recently, I was asked a great question about a month or so ago regarding a nefarious Old Testament character and God's judgment of him. Specifically, this question was about God judging the family of a man named Korah, along with him after his rebellion against Moses in the book of Numbers chapter 16. We'll begin today by turning to Numbers chapter 16 and presenting that to you, and then we'll come back to this topic after we look at this actual story of when God judges a culture or a person or a community and how sometimes people who are not as guilty as others are caught up in the judgment and dealt with along with the main perpetrators of something that results in divine judgment, if that makes sense. In the book of Numbers chapter 16, a man named Korah initiated a rebellion, a faction of rebellion against Moses in the time between the Exodus and the children of Israel going into Canaan's land following the death of Moses. Now, just to give you a little bit of the backstory here, this is after the law of God has been given. This is while they are wandering in the wilderness. After the Exodus, you might remember that because of their unbelief, they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, unable to go into Canaan's land. And when all of those who were over 20 years of age or so had passed away, with the exception of men such as Caleb and Joshua, who believed the promises of God about taking the promised land, when all of those people passed away, God blessed the next generation and those who were young at the time of that unbelief to go into Canaan's land and to take the promised land. Moses is God's sent leader in the nation of Israel at this time. And so Moses is the anointed man of God. He's not a charlatan. He's not a false prophet. Sometimes that phrase to lay not a hand of the Lord's anointed from David's life is thrown around to protect men who did things that were wrong, but in our mind they're untouchable, so we have to endure the things that they do or make excuses for it. No, that's not what the man Moses is. He's a legitimate man of God. He's sent of God to labor among these people. He's their leader. He is the one who gives the law. God gives him the law, and he provides it to them. He delivers it to them. And so to form a sort of a rebellion, an insurrection, as it were, against Moses' authority is literally to withstand God himself, because God has sent this man. And might I just say, though we're talking about a lesson from the Old Testament, this is really relevant to us today, too. If God has provided your church a good, Christ-loving, sound pastor, but you decide that maybe the church needs a change, or others in the church decide that a change needs to be made, but it's not based upon God's will and God's command. Maybe you want somebody with a little more fireworks. Maybe you want somebody who's younger or older or more celebrity in their standing among your denomination. Well, be very careful, because if God sends a man to labor among his people, and his people mistreat that man, well, you better be very careful because God always deals harshly with that. That's not something that God tolerates, mistreatment of his people. I think that's one of the things that's greatly hurt a number of churches 
in our country over the years is not providing for the man of God that God has sent their way. But this particular man, Korah, he rises up against Moses, and you can read the specifics of this, Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 11, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. Now, this man is a Levite. He's along with some other people. Dathan is one such, and On is another, sons of Reuben. They take men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. These are celebrity status individuals in Israel. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you. Now, there have been times when someone says, You take too much upon you to me, and what they meant by that was you're overdoing it. Let us help you. But that's not what these men are saying. They're saying you take too much authority. Who are you to tell us what we ought to be doing or to judge over us? Well, I'll tell you who Moses was. He was a man of God. He was the man God sent to do that. Because he was the man God sent to do that, he was who should be doing that. You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. If we're all holy and we're all God's people, Moses, who do you think you are telling us what we're supposed to be doing? Well, when Moses heard this, he fell upon his face. Remember, Moses is the most humble man who's living on the world at this time. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. He spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him, even him whom he hath chosen, Will he come near unto him? Now, this is interesting. The the choosing here has reference to who is chosen to be the authority over Israel, which would be Moses. But I love that words that reflect New Testament principles are used in this verse when Moses speaks back to Korah. The Lord will show those who are his, and the Lord will show who is holy. Notice those who are his and those who are holy are people that he has what? That he has chosen. In verse 5, this do, take your censers, Korah and the company, put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. And Moses said unto Korah, here I pray you, ye sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing upon you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle. In other words, you're a Levite. Is that not enough? but you want to take even more upon you. And so basically what Moses says is God is going to determine tomorrow in the sight of everybody who is his true servant and who is not his true servant, who is his and who is wicked. And that would be a word that would find itself later on in this story from Numbers chapter 16. In verse 23, Moses begins warning the children of Israel. Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Datham and Abiram. And Moses went up and went unto Datham and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he said unto the congregation, Depart, I pray you, listen to this, from the tents of these wicked men. So on one hand, you have those that are the Lord's. On one hand, you have those who are holy. On one hand, you have those that are chosen. And on the other hand, you have wicked men. Moses warns, I pray you, I beg you, get away from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. Touch not the unclean thing, as it were. So they got up from the tabernacle of these men on every sides, and came out, and the 
and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. Moses goes on to say that if these men die, the common death of all men, if they live to be old and die a normal death, then the Lord hasn't sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, all of their faction, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. Now, in other words, Moses says, all right, fine. Everybody get away from them because something bad's about to happen. If God sent me, he's going to judge them. But if they live to be old and to die of natural causes, we might say, if they die the common death of all men, if they grow old and die, then God didn't send me and God sent them. And so as it came to pass, as he made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained unto them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation of Israel. After this, a fire comes from the Lord and consumed 250 men that offered incense. Remember, these men were supposed to grab these censers and to offer incense. So all of the people that united themselves with Korah and his faction, they perished. And you saw that their houses perished as well. The question was asked to me, why did the families of these men have to perish along with the men? Wouldn't it be enough that the men were judged, but that their families should have been spared? And implied in that is we either don't understand or don't agree with something that God has chosen to do. But in actuality, and a lot of people miss over this, if you look at Numbers 26 and verse 11, I want you to notice this little statement. This is recapping what happened with Korah and his family when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Look at this in verse 11. Notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. When God judged Korah, he actually didn't destroy Korah's children. He judged Korah and any in his house that united with him. He destroyed the faction of people. But Korah's children were actually spared. God didn't actually judge Korah's children for the sins of Korah. And as a little bit of a note up front before we begin digging into some of the thoughts that I have about when God judges an entire culture or an entire nation, and sometimes those who were not necessarily involved in the sin are caught up in the judgment. One thing I want to point out is, as it is with Numbers 26.11, while Scripture says their house was destroyed, sometimes we don't realize that there might have been other people that were spared because God is merciful. We see this with the Canaanites. Israel goes in, and they're sent to utterly vanquish them, and yet they're still Canaanites after that. Why? Because God was merciful, and all of them did not perish. Did you realize that before God sent Israel in to judge the Canaanites, he actually sent hornets into Canaan's land to drive many of them out? Because God is merciful, because he's rich in mercy and he's slow to wrath, even though that was a very wicked and godless society— he still drives some of them out so that they're not totally vanquished and destroyed in the siege against all of their various cities when Israel would go in and take the land that was rightfully theirs. And so from this verse, Numbers 26, 11, 10 chapters after the story of Korah's house being swallowed into the ground, 
we read that God actually spared some of them, and we don't have that in the original recounting of that. But later, as we get more information, this reminds us that we never know the full scope of the story and that God is always so much more merciful than we believe and that we understand. But I want to give some thoughts about this sort of a thing in the world. The first thing that I want to point out is that as we look at when God would judge an entire culture, maybe the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe the global flood, as we look at events like that, the sieges against Jerusalem when everybody would die, male, female, young and old people would die, sometimes in an act of judgment, we sometimes question why God would allow or even send a judgment to happen if it's going to affect everyone, not just those who are the most guilty for whatever is wrong in that culture or that community. But I want us all to remember that a single sin separates us from God for an even greater judgment, and we're all sinners many times over. Without Christ in my life, without the Lord Jesus taking away my sin, a single sin is all it would take one violation of the commandments of God, one lie, and all of us come forth from the womb speaking lies, one covetous thought, one lustful thought, one unrighteous indignation. All it would take is one sin to separate me from God's presence for eternity. Now remember, God's not responsible for sin. We're responsible for sin. God is not the author of sin, nor does he have fellowship with any therein. God despises sin. His holiness forbids sin from coming into his presence. So as we might think about the global flood or the judgments against Israel or other nations that were judged, we should remember that one sin is enough to separate us from God forever, and this is in a place of far greater judgment than the earth swallowing someone alive, because the lake of fire burns forever, and those in the lake of fire, their worm dies not, their flame is not quenched, as it were, we're all already guilty of enough sin. Any breath we take is a mercy of God that we're even yet here. So the idea that, well, you know, maybe the Lord was harsh in his dealing with a culture, a community, a person, a family, whatever, that idea doesn't properly reflect God's holiness, nor does it properly reflect man's sinfulness. Now, as we mentioned with the sons of Korah, the children of Korah actually being spared, his little children, here in Numbers 26, 11, God is also very merciful. And so what do we find with Jonah going to a place like Nineveh? God sending a man of God there to give them the word, even though they were wicked, so that their culture might be spared. God is so merciful that he sends so many times warnings that a culture would repent of the terrible things that are going on prior to his judgment, even Nineveh could be spared, which was the capital city of an enemy state of the nation of Israel. Very wicked city. And yet they repented, and in that generation, they were spared from national ruin and national judgment. But remember, as far as me personally, a single sin can separate me from God forever. The wages of sin is death, If I have lived, as I have, nearly 41 years in this planet, I don't know how many seconds offhand are in 41 years, but every single one of them after my conception was a mercy because I was shaped in iniquity and I was conceived in sin. Number two, we should never reply against God. 
And this is something that Americans need to understand today. We shouldn't reply against God. We're not that smart. We're not that wise. We're not that ingenious or brilliant. And what Paul would say of such a thing, as he's talking about election in Romans chapter 9, for instance, Paul would say, Who art thou that repliest against God? That's Romans 9 and verse 20. Oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? We have to be careful when we look at things such as a judgment that befalls men or God sending in Israel to take their land and to wage war against the inhabitants. We have to be careful not to reply against God. God is infinitely wise. He has all knowledge. He knows everything that would take place in the world. His will is right. His will is good. And we are sinful. And so we should never reply against God where we would argue with him or his will or his designs. As Paul said in Romans chapter 11, who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. We simply lack the wisdom to know what God's will is in the world and why God's will is in the world. And we are certainly in no place to question him or reply against God. Number three, as we think about cities or cultures or families being judged, and this might even involve the concept of multi-generational curses and things such as that. Generally speaking, God doesn't judge children for their parents' sin. Now, there are times when a culture is judged, and everyone within that culture finds the same judgment. But as far as specifically, every man pays for his own sin. Where would we find this? Well, not turning to the gospel, where every person is answerable to God for their sins, but actually looking in the Old Testament— In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, and verse 16, look at this. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And so in God's perfect holy law, every man would be put to death for his own sin. If a person committed a sin worthy of death, they were put to death, but not the family. It was perfect and equitable. There was true justice in God's law that he had given. And so in a general sense, God judges each individually. Now I can hear the whataboutism that might be the reply to that. What about in Exodus chapter 20, where God says that he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and of the third and fourth generation of them that hate him? Doesn't that teach a generational sort of judgment for sin? The most important part of that for you to hear and to learn is the phrase, them that hate me. Okay, so if there are three or four generations of people who hate God, then yes, God will visit the sins upon three to four generations. But what if there's a person in those generations that loves God? Well, God shows mercy unto thousands of them that love him and keep his commandments, the very following verse. And so the concept of, well, Three generations ago, my granddad was a wretch, and so my life is going to be terrible because of my wretched granddad. That's simply not biblical. But as it relates to personal judgment, everyone is judged based upon the things that they do. This special statement in Exodus 20 has reference to those that hate Christ. Again, to the fourth generation of them that hate me. And so if your great-grandfather hated Christ, but you love Christ— Well, you're not a part of those that God visits the iniquity on. Guess what? God visits judgment on the iniquity of everyone that has iniquity outside of Christ. And so there's no surprise or contradiction there at all. 
Number four, God sometimes does a great act of judgment to set a standard and to make a point. And so with Korah, from the New Testament we read that this man being swallowed alive by the earth because of his sinfulness, well, that was actually God's setting of a standard and making an example out of him. As we read back there in that passage, he would be a sign when God made a sign out of him. He serves as an example of what displeasure God has for false teachers and those who come against God's truly sent ministry. There's great vengeance that can befall someone for being terrible to those true servants of God that are doing their best in the world. Korah stands as an example. How do we know that? Well, the book of Jude, for one, says that referring to false teachers, they have gone the way of Cain, ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Cori. These men, like Balaam and Cain and Cori, they stand as examples for the types of people that have done God's children wrong all through time. And this judgment that befell Korah, or Cori, as he's called here in Jude, is God putting a monument on his life, a sign, as it were, saying, this is what happens. This is my displeasure. This is the judgment that comes to those who hate me and to stand against my men. What's another notable example of this sort of thing? In the same book of Jude, verse 7, we read, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah set forth an example of what it's like to suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. So when we read about the sort of destruction that befell Sodom and Gomorrah, what we're looking at is when God intervened in the world in a very special way and sent a very pointed and pronounced judgment upon a culture that had degraded into outright violence and anarchy and sinfulness. And we can look back at that example and look to God's future judgments against sin. Second Peter chapter 3 describes the flood in a similar way. Some people are ignorant of the fact that God judged the world by way of a global flood, but what we should do is look back at that and then turn and look forward to God's future judgments in the world, finally culminating in the second coming of Christ when he will destroy this world and this universe. Another case of God making an example out of someone is a couple of church members in the book of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a possession, they kept back part of the price, and his wife, being privy to it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And what they did wasn't wrong had they not been dishonest about it. You can keep what you have, it belongs to you. Peter's very clear with that. While it remained, was it not thine own? But these people sell it, basically saying, we're going to sell it and give the money to the church. They told everybody they had done it. It was for show and it was for look, and they had basically lied to the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And when Ananias heard these things, what did he do? He died. He gave up the ghost and he fell down and great fear came on all them that heard these things. God made an example out of him. Now, there are a lot of people in the world that have lied to the Lord, and they have lied to the church, and they have lied to the ministry, 
And frankly, I'm thankful that this doesn't happen every time that one of us sins. If fire fell from heaven or we died, any time we sinned, none of us would be here and the world would be an empty place. But occasionally, God will make an example out of someone or a city or a faction or a culture. And by this, he's setting a standard and he's pointing down the road to future judgments. In this case, well, I imagine this woke everybody up in the church And I imagine that the fear of God was on the hearts of everyone who worshipped God, who knew about this, and who knew Ananias and Sapphira. And no one dared for a long time lie to the Lord or lie to the church about matters such as this again. They knew the stakes. God had made an example. This was a sign unto them. And so sometimes judgments like that would fall a person like Korah, because God is setting an example and making a sign. This man, Ananias, his wife would walk in, and the same exact thing would happen to her. Now, as it relates to the children of Israel, sometimes a family would be cut out of Israel, and that was a great judgment that could befall them, too, because to them, their national lineage meant everything. Their identity was kept in that, and to have your family blotted out of Israel, as it were. That was a terrible, terrible thing to happen to you because your lineage meant everything. Now, all of that lineage and all of those genealogies, that was for the sole purpose of bringing us to the time of Christ because God gave those promises to Abraham and Christ would come into the world and fulfill all of those promises. He was the seed of Abraham that should come into the world. The purpose of all of that was literally Christ. And so God has no purpose for any of that in the world today. But to them back then, to have your name and your family's name cut out of Israel was a great judgment and a terrible thing to experience. And lastly, number six, there's also occasionally when God would judge an entire city or an entire world, even as it were, with the flood. There's a sort of a putting out of its misery of a culture that becomes so violent and so wicked that people are abusing each other all day long, every day, beating each other, raping, stealing, killing, oppressing, and enslaving. We like to make light of how sinful this world can really be, but there are times in human history when God has just put a city or even the world out of its misery. In the book of Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, it repented the Lord that he made man. It grieved him at his heart because... Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and because of that, the world was filled with violence. The world was just overflowing with violence. People are literally just killing each other. Good people are prey, if there are even any good people left, because the evil people are just pillaging. It was barbaric, it was savage, and that was what was taking place before the flood. And so what God does, it grieves him at his heart, And he judges the world. He destroys it. He puts it out of its misery. And every single human being, whether old or young or in between, died in that flood. Because, again, it was a very wicked place and it needed to be ended. But God, even in that, gives mercy. How? Well, upon all of us today, God delivered Noah, his wife, and their three sons, and their three sons' wives, so that humanity could go on and so that we would have a hope to be with him in glory. You and I would have never existed if the world got what it deserved back in the days of Noah. Places like Sodom and Gomorrah were so violent that when God caused pillars of fire to fall from heaven, 
We look at that so many times from a perspective of judgment, and that is true because they stand as an example of eternal fire, as we just read from Jude. But at the same time, there's a putting out of its misery that was involved in Sodom and Gomorrah. They were so wicked in that city. Mobs literally roamed the city abusing people. Well, when fire fell from heaven and put an end to that, it literally put the community out of its misery. I suppose a good thought to end our broadcast on today is simply to say that God knows best. God is holy. We are sinful. And even the best of us don't have enough intelligence or spirituality to always discern what should happen in the world at any given time. And so we simply bow our heads. We pray for mercy. We pray for deliverance. And we say, Lord, thy will be done in heaven and in earth. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.